Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. At Pathways Financial Credit Union, we know things come up that might require extra family funds. You could use the equity in your home to help pay for almost anything, from home improvements to a family vacation. Our home equity line of credit has rates and payments much lower than a traditional loan or credit card. Find out why Pathways is the fastest-growing credit union in Ohio over the last 10 years. Visit one of our convenient locations or check us out at Pathways C. Offer of credit is subject to credit approval. Pathways is an equal opportunity lender and is federally insured by the NCUA. Welcome, everyone, to episode 164 of the NBA podcast. I'm Brian Toporek, and today we are joined by a very special guest, former Charlotte Hornets general manager Rich Cho. He's going to walk us through how NBA teams prepare for the offseason, including the draft, free agency, basically give us a behind-the-scenes look at how that all goes down. Before we get underway... A reminder that you can follow us on Twitter at the NBA Pod. In our bio, you can find our Twitter handle, so give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes, so please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews. We'd love any feedback. And we're now being hosted on the Almighty Baller Podcast Network, so check them out on Twitter at AlmightyCasts. One more disclaimer before we get underway. We recorded this in June, so if any references are out of date, that's why. With all that said, joining me today, as always, is my very stable genius of a co-host, Morton Jensen. How's it going, Mort? Brian is going so well. I just had Indian for dinner, and that means I'm in a great mood. <laughs> I did that Saturday as well, so that's, yeah, great minds, I guess. And, and uh, speaking of food and, frankly, the offseason, as mentioned, we have a very special guest on today. Rich Cho, the former general manager of the Charlotte Hornets, is joining us to Give us that behind-the-scenes look at the offseason. So, Rich, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Doing, doing well. Uh, before we get underway, Rich, I uh, want to give you a chance to plug anything you want, Twitter, Instagram. Be our guest. Okay. Well, my Instagram and Twitter are at Big Time Bites, and uh, my website, my food blog, is uh, BigTimeBites.com. So uh, check it out. Very good, yeah. And for the foodies out there, we're gonna we're gonna walk through some NBA stuff first. But at the end of the episode, we'll go back and talk about big time bites as well. So check it out in the meantime while you're listening to the rest of the episode. So, Rich, the first question we have for you, I mean, this is really just the overall general question because we obviously, you know, do not work for an NBA team. We do not have a behind the scenes look of how these things go. So. You know, the draft is in a week, basically. Free agency starts, I think, within two or three weeks. I'm guessing the offseason prep has started by now by for most teams. But when when do you really start to, like, buckle down and prepare for this upcoming offseason as a general manager? Is it after the trade deadline? Or are you looking like, you know, have you been preparing for the 2018 offseason since 2015, 2016? Yeah, well, well, preparation for the off season is really year round, and the biggest part of the off season is obviously the draft and free agency. So, it's something that you're constantly preparing for from the standpoint of scouting players and and gathering intel on players. And 
you know, as an NBA team, you have to prepare uh, short-term and long-term. So uh, the prep prep is really year-round. Uh, it's kind of nonstop. Really, the only downtime in the NBA cycle is probably the end of August, and that's when most of the guys around the front office take their vacations. But as far as prep, it, it, it's really year-round. That that's I mean we we've talked about this on the podcast before Brian and I uh, several times regarding like how to prepare in a summer and we always figure like you have to look at it from like a more wholesome perspective because you can't just like a couple of weeks before the summer go oh now we get into like this this mode of how <laughs> how do we construct a roster for the for the next couple of years like you you have to be on point for for basically the whole season and beforehand so. I, I want to ask you about the draft, like in speci- specifically regarding the draft. Like, when does like scouting of particular prospects like ramp up? I mean, you obviously cast a wide net over a lot of these prospects, but when do you really like hone in on someone? And even before that, like, do you have meetings prior to the seasons to really look at? Okay, these are the guys we're gonna consider at draft time. What is that whole process like? How does that come about? So, you know, every team's got their own philosophy and infrastructure, but teams typically have four or five full-time college scouts, a pro scout, and and an international scout. So uh, some teams have more than that. Some teams have less than that. But that's that's probably typical. Uh, other teams utilize regional scouts um, that are based in cities around the country who just scout games in that particular region. Uh, I'm not a fan of that philosophy cause, because uh, I think it's important to ask a scout, for example, to break down the difference between, say, Colin Sexton and Trey Young. And for accountability purposes, I want to put them on the uh, on notice and ask them who they would prefer. So, um, you know, as far that's kind of a little bit on on on, uh, on how a team structured scouting wise. Uh, you also have your your assistant GM and your GM and your director of player personnel. They'll they'll do a lot of scouting um, as well during the season. But the scouting process for the draft starts in July. So you've got um, different camps put on by the shoe companies, uh, the Adidas camp, the Nike camp, Under Armour camp, and in those camps you get an up-close look at different prospects for the upcoming year, as well as young guys who uh, might be a year away from college. And then on the international side, you've got uh, different tournaments in Europe by age group. You've got basketball without borders and and various other events. So, um, you know, as far as the different meetings and and things like that, what what, uh, I've done in the past is have a scouting and front office retreat um, right before training camp. And it, the, the purpose of that meeting is to set the table for the upcoming season. And uh, typically what you're going to talk about or what, what I've talked about in the past is you know, the state of the team, um, players on your own team, uh, players who are on your team that are going to be free agents at the end of the year. I think it's important to get to, um, because your scouts, typically are are not located in the city that that uh, the team is located just for um, financial purposes uh, so the scouts might not see your team on an everyday basis so 
you want to make sure that the scouts have a good feel and pulse of of the team and um, the landscape of, of how the team's constructed, who's going to be a free agent, who's not going to be a free agent, and maybe what you're looking for uh, from a, a scouting standpoint. So uh, other things that you're going to talk about in this, you know, in your retreat or draft draft meetings uh, at the start of the season, um, you know, what are we looking for from a scouting standpoint? You want to, you want to make sure that, that uh, everyone's on the same page. So uh, you can't just send out scouts and uh, around the country and go to different games and and uh, not be on the same page. So what are you know different important characteristics in players that that uh, each scout should be looking for when you're out there scouting? So for example, is it is it skill level, athleticism, basketball IQ, toughness? What are the things that um, that are important to you as a staff. So I, I think that's important to get um, to get everybody on the same page. And then uh, the scouting report process. After you see a game, what's the process for getting the information back to the front office? Uh, and, and what format do we want that information in? And uh, what content should, should it have in it? And then, you know, how long uh, how long after game should that report be in? Uh, so, you know, those are all things that are kind of setting the table for the upcoming season. And, um, uh, you know, as far as things that that uh, you know you want in different reports, uh, what I always did, what I always um, emphasized to the scouts was. Uh, I never told the scouts what exactly to write and not to write uh, because I think it's important for scouts to have their own um, way of writing the scouting report. Every scout writes something a little different. Um, And, uh, you know, other teams use like a a form and, uh, you know, they're checking boxes or, or rating players or, or assigning a numeric value to different things. But but what I always did was I'd have scouts write a scout report, and like I said, I, I didn't tell them what to put in it or what not to put in it necessarily. But in in general, what I'm looking for is, okay, what, what are the physical attributes of this player? What are the strengths of this player? Weaknesses, tendencies, um, what does he do offensively, defensively? How athletic is he? Um, and what you know, what makes this player an NBA player, and how good is he going to be when he reaches his prime? It, it's interesting to hear you say. I mean, it makes total sense. But you know, the fact that you the, the idea of the scouting retreat before the season and having them consider, um, you know, the construction of the roster as you mentioned, and like which players are free agents, it, it makes me think. You know, I, I'm a Sixers guy, so, you know, from that perspective, like, I wonder if they say, okay, we just signed Joel Embiid to a five-year deal. We don't need to necessarily scout, you know, centers as much as we do wings and ball handlers. It's it's interesting. Um, but you mentioned as well, you know, you're, you're, you're asking scouts to dig into the physical attributes and athleticism and all that stuff. How about the off court, like uh, character issues, um, you know, back just background information about 
you know, we hear a lot about questions about motor in particular, especially with big men, it seems. Um, how much do you dig into that stuff? How much do you weigh that compared to the physical attributes? And uh, who do you talk to? Is it just like the college coach, their high school coaches, or are you also having, you know, we hear about the NFL, like they send play, like scouts out to bars to see if, if uh, the top prospects are there. So how much does that stuff weigh in to the evaluation process? Well, I think it's different for every team. Uh, some teams are going to weigh it uh, more than others, but with the teams that I've been on, put a, a tremendous amount of weight in it we spend a lot of time and effort gathering intel on players um and it, it'll be with their college coaches assistant coaches um strength coaches trainers student managers academic advisors aau people uh you know we want to know what their personality is like what's their work ethic like does he come in for extra work outside of practice or is he, you know, come into practice and then leave right after practice? Is he a leader or a follower? What's their family life like? Um, how close are they to their family? What's his competitiveness like? Does he, you know, does he really hate to lose? Um, and there's obviously there's varying degrees of competitiveness. How much does he like basketball? Does he like the weight room? Does he smoke? Does he drink? Does he party? And what are the, what are some maybe off-court issues? If, if the uh, player had an off-court issue, um, you know, you want to dig into that a little more too. And for uh, different guys that we, maybe we have a, a high uh, focus group or focus on uh, towards the end of the season, um, you know, we might do an FBI check on, on the player as well. Wow. It's interesting. So, <clears throat> I mean, that, that takes me back to the Pistons when they chose uh, Andre Drummond because they actually were looking at a way to kind of avoid picking another Darko. And I believe the, the Pistons brass at the time expressed that they have gone into like 10 times, 100 times the, the background check just to make sure that they did not end up with, well, I don't want to say with another bust. It just they they had some complications with, for example, you know, Darko that they didn't anticipate. So I'm assuming just just as the NBA has progressed, as and as you know, the availability of information has has you know progressed. It's it's that much more essential to get you know proper intel on these guys. And in lieu of that, when when you are you guys are doing a draft board, like. When, how, at what point do you set that in stone? With all this gathered information you just talked about, like, is it does it remain fluid until you pick, or do you come into the draft with like a very set order and go, we know who we are going to pick here, here, and here if they're available, and here are our backup plans. Well, I think if your process is done right, you're going to have your draft order set the night before the draft. What what you don't want is to have chaos during the draft and, and be unprepared during the draft. So, you know, it, it's like the bar exam. If you're still studying the day of the bar, <laughs> then you're not ready for it. So, you know, and I've, I've taken and passed the bar exam, so uh, I'm not just throwing that out. <laughs> but um, if, uh, you know, you're also, and you, and you don't want a lot of chaos and disagreement uh, when you're on the clock. 
But um, so typically as the draft unfolds, when it's your turn to pick, you're going to select the player uh, on the top of your list that hasn't been drafted yet. Now, if you make a trade during the draft, that can change things and you'll have to you know, pivot accordingly. But for the most part, uh, you're going to have your draft board uh, set in stone the night before the draft. And, uh, you know, like I said, trades can uh, change those things. And say if you make a trade, uh, during the draft, early in the draft, the, uh, for, say, a backup point guard who you think, uh, let's say a young backup point guard you think you think will be uh, with your team for a long time, then maybe that changes your, your draft order a little bit. If, if you've got um, uh, several players that are basically even in, in other regards, maybe you move that backup point guard back a little bit in your uh, priority order. Interesting. Um, so whether you have your board set ideally before the draft, but even, you know, sometimes <laughs> it might not happen until you're like the night of the draft or even until you're on the clock. How do you settle upon a consensus for, you know, if you have two prospects who you think are going to be available at your pick or who, you know, if you're on the clock and you have two prospects who are available, they're closely ranked on your board. How do you settle a consensus between the scouts and other front office personnel at that point? Well, I mean, that's a process of a lot of different meetings and with your scouts and your staff and combing through film and, uh, arguments and debates and disagreements and uh you know you all want to be on the same page at the end of the day and, and uh so you just have to work through it just like any other uh, big decision um but it's something that's not easy because you've got um you know a lot of debate among scouts and personnel and which you should you know you should have a lot of healthy debate among your scouts in your uh, in your front office because uh, uh, you don't want everybody thinking the same way. But at the end of the day, you know you have to come to some sort of consensus and, and have your draft order set. Uh, you know the night before the draft. And in terms of you know not just the draft order, but you mentioned trades. Like you could make a trade on draft night. It, at what point do those conversations? with other teams begin. I mean, we, we've read a couple articles from, from high-ranking media members who like go into the details of how a trade is made. And essentially, like the, the vast majority of the points were made that a team doesn't just ring someone up and within 10 minutes they have a trade. It goes a long way back. It goes further back. And so we're curious to understand, like when you do a draft day trade, like how long does has that conversation typically been been ongoing? Like, and and if you are willing to move a draft pick or a guy for a draft pick, like how do you make that known? Well, trades happen a lot of different ways. Sometimes they they're they've developed over the course of a few weeks, over the course of a few months, and uh, but sometimes they come up, you know, in an instant. So. Um, you know, they might come up during the draft when you're on the clock, and it might be something that that uh, has never been brought up before by either you or another team. Maybe they made another trade 
And it's uh, something that just came up where now they're willing to trade this other player or their pick. And so they're bringing it to you for the first time during the, the draft when, uh, um, you know, as it leads up to your pick. So, but sometimes, a lot of times, uh, these are conversations that have um, been had before uh, in the weeks and months leading up to the draft. Maybe it's something earlier in the season that uh, you have an interest in a, in a certain player. They have an interest in one of your your players, and uh, nothing came to fruition as far as a trade. But but um, you know, maybe they they feel like at the end of the year, as it, as it leads up to the draft, Hey, you know what? We're willing to part with this player now, uh, whereas we weren't before. And, uh, so now you, you're going to uh, drum up more conversations. And, um, so the, it really happens a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slow. Um, but for the draft, you always have to be, uh, prepared for a lot of different scenarios and, and, um, uh, you know, make and be able to also make quick decisions. So it can actually pop up fairly quickly because that that's been one of the things that you know NBA Twitter is very active about these things. And and one of the main consensus <laughs> out there is, oh, like you can't just you can't complete a trade like within a couple hours, basically. But it seems to, if I'm understanding you accurately, like that could actually pop up. Like some deal could pop up on draft night that could be discussed. Uh, the details could be arranged and it could be executed on that very night. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And, and as a front office, you have to be prepared, uh, you know, with all your spreadsheets. Um, you have to, you know, know every team's cap situation, every team's free agent situation, draft situation. So when a team calls or you're ready to call another team that, that you're able to make, uh, split decisions, uh, you know, if whether you're on the clock or leading up to when you're on the clock. Um, so things do happen fast. I, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily that that's the norm, but they, it definitely does happen. Hmm. I think Mort is a recovering Bulls fan, and I think he's still just scarred from the Jimmy Butler trade from last year. It's just, he's just making sure that Garpax did, in fact, shop Jimmy Butler to more than one team before the draft. That, that's my guess. Uh, now, I think the bigger the bigger the deal, uh, you know, I think the high the less probability that it's going to happen in a split second if you haven't talked about it in the past. Sure. So, you know, there's there's that caveat too. Yeah, that that makes sense. I, I think about like the Kyrie Irving trade last summer too, and it seemingly, I mean, he you know the the request the trade request came out in July, but then it kind of went under wraps for a month. Like none of no one in the public at least knew about it. And then all of a sudden, like boom, he got traded to the Celtics. So, but it, before we go into for the free agency side of things, I do have one more question. Just you mentioned kind of about trades, and um, I, I'm curious about like trade rumors. But you know, like Woj and Sham Sharani of Yahoo, those guys are all on top of this stuff. Mark Stein of the New York Times as well. Who's feeding these guys? Is it, is it mostly agents or, you know, RGM strategically leaking this kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> Kyrie, Kyrie Irving's available via trade, just putting it out there. And then are you like trying to feed interest and like drive up a bidding war through the media? 
Well, I think it kind of depends. Uh, you know, I, I think some front office guys feel the need to feed some of the media members so uh, they won't write negative things about them <laughs> or, their, or their teams. But uh, other off, other front office members, you know, really like to keep things close to the vest. Uh, I was more of a keep things close to the vest guy kind of guy. Um, and so, you know, some of the rumors out there, there, I know some of the rumors out there are false because, uh, I'd see stuff about our team that I know darn well, they're, they're false. So you can't believe everything you see out there, but you're right. There's, there is a lot of stuff out there that does wind up being true. And, and I'm not sure who's feeding some of those things out there, but, um, you know, you just have to kind of, kind of take some of that with a grain of salt, and some of it's true, some of it's not. Interesting. Um, more, any other questions about the draft, or should we go right into free agency? I think we should go into free agency. Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just $2, $4, and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles. Now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729-811. Select styles. Excludes in-store clearance cool okay so then you know we'll put the draft aside june 21st is over we're now turning our attention to july 1st the start of free agency at more or rich i guess the first question we have in that regard is you know you're when you're negotiating a contract with a potential free agent signee obviously the circumstances of your team will weigh a lot in terms of, you know, if you're a win now team, maybe you don't mind the ramifications three years down the road as much or vice versa. But how do you weigh kind of, you know, the, the short and long-term ramifications of any contract that you're willing to offer? Well, I think when you're a team, you've got to plan short and long-term. So you're always going to, plug numbers in and, uh, you know, project short-term and long-term. Okay, if I give this player this deal at this amount of salary for X amount of years, this is what my salary book looks like. And, if, you know, if we do this, this, and this, this is what it looks like. So you're always looking at different uh, salary models and uh, how things can shape up from a flexibility standpoint and, short and long-term ramifications. Uh, so it, it's a constant process because you always want to uh, think short-term and long-term, and you never want to be in a situation where, uh, you know, you're not thinking of both those, both those um, aspects. So when you look at the potential, you know, signees out there, like how much information gathering do you guys do prior to, to like hitting the free agency market. Is it accurate to assume that the high profile free agents, they are, they are so well known that you don't really have to do a whole bunch of background checks on them and you don't really have to like do a whole bunch of research for them. But when it comes to like lesser known players, maybe 
young guys who are unrestricted, like then maybe you put more effort into to like looking at the player from a long term perspective. No, I don't think so. Really, I think for the high profile free agents, even though they're really well known, so you're going to have to pay them a lot more too. So. <laughs> uh, I think it's really important to gather information on them throughout the year. And and uh, the pro scout I had in Charlotte did a great job for us, Todd Quinter, who has been in the league for 30 years. And he had so many contacts around the league. If I wanted uh, information on, on a certain player, I, I could get it pretty easily. Uh, he could get it uh, for me. Uh, just with all his contacts and he would gather information throughout the year. um, Even if we didn't need it, you know, just from talking to guys around the league and, and, uh, but then we'd put it into our database and we'd have that information in case a a trade did come up. So you want to gather information on high profile guys uh, as well as guys that aren't necessarily high profile because you never know when, you're going to uh, need that information. Now, you just brought up something interesting there because I don't think a lot of people really talk about pro scouts. Like most, when, when we use the word scouts, we mostly use it in, in terms of draft-related uh, stuff and content. So how much are pro scouts uh, pro scouts used in, in, in the NBA? Well, when I got to Charlotte, uh, you know, seven years ago, they didn't have a pro scout and, and – uh, mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, they allowed me to bring in a pro scout, and I think it's really important because, uh, you know, you acquire players through the draft, free agency, and trades, and two-thirds of that is, is, uh, consists of pro players, trades and free agency. Uh, so it's really important to have a good pulse of what's going on in the NBA, and, uh, so, and so that's pro scouting. Mm. So, you know, I had a Todd Todd would go out to uh, tons and tons of games uh, each month, and uh, he'd get a feel for for all the guys um, in the NBA and send the information back to us. You know, when you're uh, in the front office, whether it's uh, being a GM or assistant GM, uh, you know, you're traveling with the team uh, part of the time. You're also out seeing some college games. And sometimes you don't have, uh, you, you know, you're not going to have time to see every single game of every team. Right. So uh, you need a pro scout to not only see games in person, but see games on film. And then, uh, you know, report back to you, not just on the uh, basketball aspect, but uh, the background and intel aspect as well. Mm. That's right. This is really interesting. I didn't more. I'm right with you. I didn't really I didn't consider. Know. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that that's, either. That's that's actually that's very interesting. Like that's a whole different component we didn't we actually haven't realized or or discussed before. So that's that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I think pro scouting is really important. So, like, when you're a GM or or let's say you guys, right? Yeah. Uh, you you guys watch a lot of games on, on League Pass and and. Uh, so when you're watching a game, a lot of times, you know, I do it myself. I'm not going to watch a game from start to finish necessarily if there's three other games on TV and those are close games that are ending. So I'm going to, 
I'm going to uh, turn the channel and watch the close games and then go back and forth. And, and so what a, a good pro scout will do is he'll see games in person. He'll see games on film. He'll break down guys for you on film and, and then send reports back to you uh, accordingly. So he, he uh, would have a great feel for the NBA, for each team, different players. And, and you know, I would meet with, with the pro scout before the season and, and kind of lay out. We'd lay out together, okay, what are we, you know, what are we trying to accomplish here uh, pro scouting-wise for the year? These are the free agents that are, are going to be um, available at the end of the year. Let's focus on these guys. These are some some potential trade targets that that we like and uh, let's make sure we focus on these guys too and and so we'd have a um basically a plan put in place each month of the season uh, okay these these are uh, the guys that we want to see and uh focus on for the year and then uh maybe and then maybe your pro scout goes to see a team and uh somebody catches his eye and then he reports back to you, and you talk about it, and and I say, uh, hey, why don't you go see that guy a few more times and gather some more information on him, because he might be a guy we want to trade for, or maybe he's a guy we want to uh, sign at the end of the year um, during free agency. Mort, I think that means your dream of retaining David Nwaba for very cheap. Yeah. I think that just died today. That's actually so funny. I was just thinking about David Nwaba. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting though. And, and it is something I didn't consider. And, and I, I want to actually seg off of that because, you know, Rich, you were mentioning with draft prospects in terms of things you're looking for, both off and on court, you know, off court background check and on court, all the physical stuff. But I want to ask, especially, you know, you came to Charlotte, as you mentioned, seven years ago, and the league has changed a lot in the last seven years, in large part thanks to the Warriors. So how have things changed in terms of that pro scouting, you know, over the past half decade or so? Are you putting more value now in sort of like two-way wings who can switch positions between everything? Are you putting less importance on traditional back-to-the-basket centers, or is there a new wave that we aren't even, you know, <laughs> the NBA public is so fixated on the Warriors right now. Is there something that you think is, like, coming down the line as the next kind of counter to them? Well, I think the game's definitely changed over the last, uh, you know, seven, eight years, and and a big part of it is the amount of threes that are taken by teams. And so, like you just said, uh, uh, two-way, def- two-way players are really important. Guys that have some versatility are really important. Bigs that can step out and shoot threes are important. And, uh, you know, teams are are uh, also uh, strategizing as well. Um, like, for example, I just was talking to somebody the other day about bigs that have changed their games. And, um, you know, Brooke Lopez... Mm-hmm. Um, in during his first eight years with the uh, uh, it, during his first eight years in the league, he um, shot. I want to say he took thirty-one three-pointers his first eight seasons combined, and he made three of them. <laughs> but in the last two seasons combined, he took over seven hundred three-pointers, and he shot close to thirty-five percent in both seasons. Mm. You know, so 
the game's definitely changed. And, and uh, another example, Marcus Soul, he took mm-hmm. 66 threes in his first eight seasons combined and made 12 of them. <laughs> Over the last two years combined, he, he's taken close to 600 threes and shooting over 35%. You know, so um, games definitely changed, uh, and uh, coaches, to their credit, have um, uh, allowed some of these bigs to to refine their game. And and it's also a credit to the player development guys in the league because you know Brooke uh, didn't just go out and start shooting uh, 700 threes in games, um, you know, they worked with him during the off season and, uh, got him to a comfort level, um, where he's able to make those threes. So you're telling me it isn't a fluke that Aaron Baines hit all of those corner threes against the Sixers in the second round. I should, I should feel less <laughs> bad about that coming out of nowhere. Cause it seems like those guys have been working on it all year would be my guess. I'm well, still... I think, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, as the game changed, I think uh, player development has also changed. And um, after practice, before practice, during practice, you're, you're having, you know, a lot of these bigs spend time on things that maybe necessarily they didn't spend time on before. And uh, shooting threes is definitely something that, uh, not just a trend, but uh, you know, I think it's here to stay because you're getting 50% more points uh, versus a two. That makes total sense. Can, can I just ask a follow-up to that? Because it seems yeah. to, in today's NBA, because of these expanded roles, for, in particular for the bigs, that you know an NBA prospect, for example, like if he comes in and he's not virtually flawless, like then he's being just hammered by the draft experts. It seems that the the demand for having players who are just so multifaceted is incredibly high. I, am I wrong in saying that that if a guy just has one significant weakness, he's gonna like, for example, drop down significantly on draft boards? Uh, well, I don't I don't know about that. I, I think it depends on the weakness and, and what teams are looking for. Um, you know, and I, I also think a lot of it is dependent on the, uh, you know, coaching staff to get the most out of each and every player. Hmm. So for example, like, uh, let's take a player, Clint Capello. Okay. Yeah. He's a guy that, that Mike D'Antoni and Houston have done a tremendous job with from a player development standpoint, not only from a player development standpoint, but from the standpoint of utilizing his strengths, so he, he can make a, a huge impact on that team. And you know, would he have the same impact on another team? I, I don't know. But a, a lot of it is how the the uh, coaching staff has used him. Obviously, it it helps that he uh, is playing with some great players that can spread the floor and, and some great. Um, and guys that can pass him the ball too, like James Harden and uh, uh, Chris Paul. Okay, so what you're saying is actually it it doesn't really if a guy has a weakness coming in, that shouldn't necessarily be uh, something you hold against him. You should actually 
it more so look at the coaching staff and the potential of what they can bring out of him. So the the coaching staff is simply more important than the supposed weakness of the player entering the draft, maybe. Yeah, I think what you're trying to uh, what you're trying to figure out is this: is does this player have room for growth uh, from a skill standpoint? And not only that. Uh, does he have the desire to be really good, and, and uh, is he going to be work hard enough so uh, he does improve? So mm-hmm. there's tons, and you know I've been in the NBA for 23 years, and there's tons of players over the years that have had the talent, but not necessarily the work ethic to get better. And um, you know, uh, and those guys aren't in the league anymore, or or they're bar- barely. Um, um, you know, surviving in the league. Yeah. So the personality aspect comes in, in in a very high regard. Is that this is this is the 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 kind of the the details that I think you know myself included are, are missing because I, I'm very active uh, on on this you know Twitter talking about draft pot prospects. But what you really like limited to is you know, the physicality and the stats and whatnot, where you. I, I, I mean, my, again, myself included, like forget to use the human aspect and as well as looking at, oh, what type of coaching staff is this kid going to get drafted into? Because that carries a tremendous importance. Yeah, it definitely does. And, and uh, uh, you know, at the same time, how, how competitive the player is and uh, what his makeup is on the inside and how good he wants to become, that's a huge, huge part of the equation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole conversation is making me think more. I don't know if this is who you were alluding to, but like a DeAndre Ayton, where you know draft experts have started to like really pick apart his defense, even though he's playing opposition, but you know at Arizona. And now this is like a free article idea to everyone. Someone should really break down, you know, assuming the Suns do pick Ayton number one, how Igor Kokoshkov is going to work with him to improve that defense and if he's going to be able to you know turn into this type of franchise player next to Devin Booker that Suns are seemingly hoping he's going to become based on at least all the speculation heading into the draft well I was um, I was actually thinking just guys in general because you know you uh, look at NBA Twitter and you see you know every prospect really being put under the loop and sure yeah you, you just kind of forget about the minutiae of it all like Rich is, is explaining like the personality and the coaching staff just matters so much, which is very interesting because that's just another factor and another layer that needs to be considered. Yeah. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Um, Rich, going back to free agency now, uh, you know, obviously, team not every team is in the same starting point on July 1st. Some teams are ready-made to compete for a title right away. Some teams are very much in the beginning stages of a rebuild or looking like a couple of years down the line in terms of where they're hoping to be competitive again. So how do those situations, uh, those different situations uh, affect your approach to the off season? 
Well, the teams that are in, you know, rebuilding mode, they're typically not going to go after, say, a big fish, right? So you're not going to give a max contract to a guy if you're in rebuilding mode and you know that, um, you know, that player might not be there uh, when your team is ready to win. So uh, teams that are ready to win now, they're going to go after the big fish. And uh, the teams that are rebuilding, they're more worried about player development. And uh, player development becomes a big part of the process. And it's all about uh, trying to get better every day and getting the guys in the gym and on the same page. And then um, also when you're building a team, uh, if you're rebuilding and and trying to grow your team, you're going to try to find uh, guys that are uh, built uh, not just from a uh, uh, standpoint of how you want to play and uh, from have the same mindset basically. Um, and because you don't want to be in a situation where you're bringing in a guy and he's not on the same page as far as rebuilding. So uh, what you don't want to do is bring in a guy and have him, uh, upset that you know your team's not winning. I, I have a question regarding like the rebuilding process, really quickly, like because uh, it seems to me that fans in today's NBA uh, have become considerably more knowledgeable than they were 20 years ago. So they have a, a higher level of understanding when a team is rebuilding. Have you experienced, you know, you being in the league for 23 years, have you experienced the fans are more at ease now when a team goes into a rebuilding process? I think they are. I think fans are very sophisticated now and and, uh, follow teams very closely. And I think there is um, a a little more emphasis on rebuilding and a little more tolerance that way. Uh, And sometimes fans want your team to rebuild. They don't want, you know, they don't necessarily want you to be – middle of the road team and so sometimes fans embrace that and want you to rebuild yeah some teams even develop a cult around it as it turns out (laughs) (laughs) um that that does lead me into another question though uh you know i want to focus on ownership a little bit because i think in terms of um you know general managers often get a lot of credit for big moves or get the blame for moves that backfire, but how much does an owner factor in there? Like, is an owner kind of pushing one, you know, are they pushing like, we want to speed up our rebuild, so we need to go after a big fish, even though, like, the general manager is saying, well, we're not ready, we need to you know, wait one more year before we really get to that point. Um, Just in general, like, how much influence does an owner have over a franchise's direction well i think it's probably different for every team um but you know i've been lucky to work for uh, a number of great owners and uh, like i said it's different for every team so i, w- I wouldn't want to speak uh, out of turn there but um you know owners have final say on everything so um you know your job as a general manager is to bring things to your owner and and uh make the case for different things and, and, uh, and then, um, 
uh, you know, see how it goes from there. But uh, like I said, I've been I've been lucky, uh, you know, in Charlotte. Uh, uh, MJ was a great owner for me, and um, uh, I have nothing but great things to say about him. Awesome, because it's been a big, you know, topic of debate. Really, you know, a lot of people are, you know, pointing their fingers at the general manager, as Brian alluded to. But at the end of the day, like you said, I mean, the owner has final say, and I think that has become a forgotten item when discussing uh, NBA teams in depth. So it, it's in, again, it's the small minutia things that we, Brian, that we we keep leaving out that. This, this <laughs> right. is very important because now we are we're going to attack NBA seasons from a different mindset. Yeah, I think we owe an apology to Rob Hennigan just forever. Oh yes, yes we do. <laughs> um, before we go into the big time bite stuff, Rich, one more question, just because we have some listeners out there who are interested in pursuing NBA careers at some point, perhaps going into a front office job. So could you just walk us through like how you got started in the NBA and then like what that process is like going from, you know, an entry level job or whatever to up to general manager? Yeah. So my undergrad degree was in mechanical engineering and, and I was an engineer for five years at Boeing and about the third year, at Boeing, I kind of got restless, and I, I really wanted to do something sports-related. Uh, I had grown up playing a lot of sports and did some research and found out that a lot of sports agents, uh, people high up at teams and people high up at governing bodies like the NBA and NFL have law degrees. So um, quit my job at Boeing after five years and, and went to law school uh, at Pepperdine down in uh, California. So my first year at in law school, I sent in a cover letter and resume to Wally Walker, who was the GM of the Seattle Supersonics at the time. And I had grown up in Seattle, uh, so that's why I, I sent a resume there. And, um, you know, I didn't know anybody in the NBA. I didn't know Wally at all. Uh, it was just a blind cover letter and resume. And luckily, Wally called me a couple months after I sent the, the letter in. And he said, uh, hey, Rich, I, I like your background. I had worked at IBM also mm. uh, at, um, during engineering school. So he said, I like your background, um, the engineering and legal. And this is in um, 1995, you know, like January 1995. And he said, I'm going to be down in the uh, L.A. area for a game, and uh, I'd like you to meet me at my hotel, and and I want to be the most technologically advanced GM in the league. So uh, I want you to show me how you can make that happen. So I remember it like it was yesterday, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I, uh, I go down to, to uh, the Ritz in Marina Del Rey, and that's where the team had been, the Sonics team was staying. And they were down there for a game. And I met him in the uh, lobby. And I brought, uh, you know, we had breakfast. And I brought a bunch of charts and ideas with me. And, and we hit it off. And luckily, after the interview, he offered me the internship. So uh, I, I interned summer after first year of law school. That was summer 1995. 
summer after second year of law school, so that's summer 96. And then when I was studying for the uh, bar exam in summer 97, I did some part-time work. And uh, so that's kind of how how it got all got started. And um, funny story, in uh, summer 95, when I was uh, working for the team my first summer, one of the things that I had proposed to Wally during the interview was designing a uh, player evaluation system. And I kind of put my uh, my GM hat on a little bit. And I thought, since he wanted to be the most technologically advanced GM in the league, what kind of tools could I give him or propose to him uh, You know, that would be useful for him? So I proposed a uh, player evaluation system and, so I wound up, summer 95, I wound up partnering up with uh, some guys at Microsoft, which is uh, right outside of Seattle, and uh, we were working on this player evaluation system. And so one day I'm over at Microsoft in the cafeteria for a meeting and with a bunch of the programmers, and one of the guys there says, and this is uh, also something like I remember like it was yesterday, he says, hey, Rich, um, there's something coming out here in a couple months that's going to change the world. And I was a little skeptical, right? That's, that's <laughs> kind of a big statement. And uh, if, you're, if you've ever been up in the Pacific Northwest and especially like at uh, the Microsoft campus, you'll, you'll know that a lot of these programmers, they come into work uh, – with cutoffs and a ponytail flip-flop. That's just how the culture is for programming and uh, the Pacific Northwest. So this guy, uh, he, he says to me, yeah, this is something coming out in a couple months that's going to change the world. And I said, well, w w what is it? And he says, well, it's this thing called the World Wide Web. <laughs> and so... Sure enough, the guy was right, and it you know obviously changed the world. And uh, I'll never forget that. But it was so funny um, how that came about, and and um, so that's kind of how I got into the NBA. And and uh, after um, after I took the bar exam, still did some part time work for the Sonics. When something opened up full time, they uh, offered me a job, and. and uh, then I was, you know, just kind of uh, worked my way up from there. Mm -hmm. Very, that's all really valuable information, I think, for everyone out there. So go get your law degrees, start doing some programming, everyone. It seems like that's the way in if you want. And, and, and work for IBM and Boeing. Right. Yeah, English majors need not apply, so I, I've officially disqualified. Oh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm totally disqualified. I, I don't have a leg to stand on here. Yeah. Uh, more any other NBA questions for Rich, or do you want to go into the the foodie? Oh, I I, stuff? I think we need to go into the foodie stuff. The Starlight Lounge presents an evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah, that's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo. Send him our condolences. Hi oh This next one's for you too. There's a burglar in my heart. 
much. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. All right. Let's do it. So, Rich, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, you created a website called Big Time Bites. Uh, first, just give our listeners, if they didn't follow my advice at the top and have not checked it out yet, just let them, let them know what it is and how it came about. Yeah, so I've always, you know, as um, all my friends know, I've always been a big eater, not just quantity-wise, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, just kind of, you know, I eat kind of everything. So, um, I've always had a, an affinity for food and, and it really started when I started traveling more with my job. I'd ask friends and coworkers, uh, for recommendations in different cities. So, um, and, you know, I'd write them down in a notebook. Uh, and when I go to those cities, I'd try out those recommendations. Some were good, some were bad, but uh, I'd always keep a mental note of it. Uh, and sometimes I'd put it in writing, especially if it was good. So, And then, you know, I'd also venture out, not just for those recommendations, but I'd also try places that I, I'd find either through my own research or uh, speaking to the hotel concierge or, you know, I, I like to talk to locals too, so I'd, I might talk to a stranger uh, at a restaurant and just strike up a conversation. And, and so pretty soon I'd have, um, my own list of, of things I liked and didn't like. And, and, uh, after a while, uh, friends and family and coworkers would ask me for, for different recommendations. So, uh, you know, my palate's pretty expansive. So, um, I'm able to give recommendations for everything from fine dining to hole in the walls. And, and, you know, I love hole in the walls too. <laughs> so it's, it's not just fancy stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, one, one day a few years ago, I thought about compiling all the information and, uh, creating a food blog and never really got it going until last, uh, July, the end of July. Um, finally started this blog and, and, uh, it had been kind of in the makings for a little bit, just kind of brainstorming here and there, but never really had time to, to get it off the ground. And then, you know, finally I, I got it off the ground and started an Instagram first as a prelude to the blog and got a lot of positive feedback. So then I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and start this, this, uh, food blog and, uh, got a lot of positive feedback and, and some of the things that, you know, distinguish it from other blogs, um, it's, it's really different than any other, uh, site out there. Uh, when I decided to do a blog, I wanted it different than other sites because there's no point doing a site that's the same as every other site. So number one, it's got a sports theme throughout the site. And, and uh, so like all my reviews are called scouting reports. And uh, any visitor to the site can file their own scouting report. Uh, and we have a rating system um, that has a sports theme to it, too. So there's a rubric for the rating system. And the system is uh, rotation, starter, all-star, franchise, and Hall of Fame. So uh, similar to uh, a like on Instagram, uh, where you... Uh, click on the heart you can do the same on, on a scouting report if you like it but you click on the fist bump so you if you like enjoy reading someone's report you can fist bump them 
And uh, a couple other things that distinguish the site are it's dish-based instead of restaurant-based. Mm-hmm. So, like, sites like Yelp and TripAdvisor, they're restaurant-based. And um, the reason I made it dish-based is when I'm traveling, I'm usually in the mood for a specific type of dish. So maybe I'm in Boston and I want a lobster roll or or I want pizza, or uh, maybe I'm looking for a great burger somewhere. So I'm really looking for different dishes, not not in great dishes, not necessarily restaurants. So the dish-based concept is, I think, is different than any other site. And uh, also uh, something that distinguishes it too is since it's called Big Time Bites. Uh, there's got to be a certain threshold, uh, ro- and rotation is the lowest uh, rating on, on the site. Got to have a certain threshold to be on the site. So in essence, uh, all the reviews are positive instead of negative. So any user mm-hmm. to the site doesn't have to sift through all the negativity that you might find on other sites because there's tons of negativity out there. <laughs> I didn't put that on my site. Um but like I said, any user to the site can uh, uh, come in and put in their own scouting report. And uh, we've got over, we just hit 1,000 scouting reports the other day. Wow. Uh, we've got tons, tons and tons of, uh, of uh, reviews on there and um, a lot of different scouts on there. A lot of different restaurants are, are, are represented on there. But like I said, it's dish-based instead of restaurant-based. And... Um, so we've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Uh, it's been uh, featured on Sports Illustrated, uh, in the New Yorker magazine, and you know, I'm trying to get more exposure for it. And um, but so far the the uh, uh, feedback's been good. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the fact that dish based is like really smart, and it makes me wonder why more sites don't do that. Because I'm thinking like if you go to a restaurant, unless you've been there five, ten times, like, if you're going there the first time, you're only going to have one dish. Right. Or, like, maybe you're exactly. with the party. Right. So, you know, maybe you're with your right. wife or whatever, your friends, and you sample some. But, like, you don't have enough information. It'd be like, for the NBA, it'd be like watching a prospect one time and then writing a extensive scouting report. And maybe the guy just had a bad game or a bad matchup or whatever. So, yeah, I think it's really cool. And, I mean, honestly, I was browsing through, through your reviews the other day. I've already pulled one. You know, I'm based out of Nashville these days. So I, I see you had one recommendation in there for, for Nashville that, you know, it was an all-star dish that I, I need to go try with my wife sometime soon. Oh, yeah. Nashville's got a great restaurant there, um, 404 Kitchen, and I had a great dish there, a, a pasta uh, bolognese dish that I, I put in in the site and and that's a great dish you got to try that one it's good <laughs> i definitely want to yeah and i'm i'm definitely going to barcelona to get the sticky rice with smoked duck that's a hall of favor oh yeah that's a big time dish there that rest particular restaurant hoffman has some great dishes uh that sticky rice with smoked duck is excellent there banafi Dessert is also excellent. I just got back from a trip to Europe and and uh, got some amazing food out there. Are you bringing along lighting for for those images? <laughs> yeah, you know what? My wife got me. Uh, she special ordered this light at a camera store, wow. and uh, 
So I carry it around with me wherever I go, and it's a special, I call it a food light, but I'm sure <laughs> you can use it for other things. But, but uh, it's a special light, and, uh, you know, because a lot of these restaurants are dark, mm. and it's hard to get good, good, a good picture. So I flash this light and take a picture and hopefully not annoy other, other patrons in the restaurant. But, uh, uh, no, I have, I do have a special light that I, I take with me and, uh, it definitely helps out for the picture quality. That's awesome. I, that's dedication. I love that. That's it awesome. Really is. That, that's really, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm from Denmark, obviously I'm for some reason. Uh, yeah. We do have like a, a restaurant, uh, mentality, a lot of us, but Most of it is really like the home cooked meal over here. Like we really put a lot of stuff into the home cooked meal. So I'm looking to to broaden my horizons a little bit. So I'm definitely gonna check out Big Time Bites for when I return to the states and and what else. Mm-hmm. Like, definitely, and when I tour Europe again once in a while, like I'll I'll have that one on my phone. Like, honey, we have to go <laughs> here and here and here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, great, and and uh, like you said, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on on the uh, dish concept versus uh, restaurant because not every good restaurant has a great, you know, not all the dishes in a good restaurant are great. Mm-hmm. So I only want great dishes. You know, when you go to a restaurant, if you go on a trip and you go to uh, a certain restaurant, you're Uh, perception of that restaurant is going to be based on the dish you have. So when I travel, I just want great dishes. I don't care if it's a, if, if the rest of the restaurant's not good. I just want great dishes wherever I go. That makes total sense. Uh, you know, we have listeners all across the U.S. and across the world, frankly. So are there any areas of either the U.S. or the world that you would like to see covered more, that you want more reviews for? Well, I think we could use more reviews everywhere, really. Um, you know, I've got a lot in Charlotte, obviously, uh, because I'm based here. But And we've got re- uh, sound reports from uh, every part of the country, but could always use more, uh, you know, in, in every part of the country, really, and overseas. So, um, you know, I hope people check out the site. Uh, it's BigTimeBytes.com, and the Instagram and Twitter are, at Big Time Bites, uh, you know, you can search on different cities, and, and we're going to have a, an app coming out um, fairly soon oh, nice. uh, where uh, you'll be able to uh, pull up the app and, and uh, do things on the app that, that you can do on the site as well. That's very cool. I Be- before want to get even fatter. That's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> We're we're married now, Boyd. It's okay. We That's can true. let ourselves go. I, yeah, I already did several years. Ago. <laughs> Before we let you go, Rich, uh, are there any meals in particular that you want to shout out? Like favorite meals you've had either in the states or abroad? You know, my favorite. I would say my favorite city to eat is Boston. Ooh. Uh, I mean, it's the great city. First of all. But uh, it's got great food. There's a restaurant there called Neptune Oyster House that's got an amazing, amazing lobster roll. And uh, it's um, big, the lump lobster meat. 
in a warm toasted bun and it's a hall of fame dish i don't i'm really picky on my on my rating system <laughs> and it's one of my hall hall of fame i think i have 11 hall of fame dishes uh that i that i've uh, put in and it's one of my hall of fame dishes neptune oyster house um the lobster roll is awesome and then uh, uh, there's another great restaurant there called Ostra, and they've got an amazing sea bass tartare, which mm. is uh, incredible as well. So, and, and that's a Hall of Fame dish on, on my site uh, as well. And as far as overseas, uh, I love going to uh, Thailand and mm. getting the local food there. Um, and, uh, you know, going overseas to places like Thailand, I think, uh, there's a kind of, uh, uh, peacefulness about going overseas and eating at hole in the walls there because you go there and people are working there day in and day out, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. And they don't care about the rat race or they don't care about who's winning the NBA championship or moving <laughs> up the corporate ladder. And there's just a sanctity about the whole thing and just going there, uh, having a, a great meal. And uh, there's a peacefulness there about that. And I just love going overseas, um, especially over to Southeast Asia for, for, um, for the, not just for the culture and food, but uh, just for the peacefulness. Mm. My wife has been begging me to go there for a long time. So you, um, I'm going to tell her not to listen to those last five minutes or, or she's going to actually miss me. Um, Rich, thank you again for joining us today. Just one more time, let listeners know where they can find Big Time Bites uh, on Twitter, Instagram, wherever. Yeah, it's uh, the Twitter and Instagram are at Big Time Bites. And... Uh, the website is bigtimebites.com. Very good. Well, everyone, hope you enjoyed this. Uh, give us a follow on the NBA podcast at the NBA pod on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in our bio. So give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes. So please subscribe, download, leave some five-star reviews. We'd love any feedback. And we're now being hosted on the Almighty Baller Podcast Network. So check them out on Twitter at Almighty Casts. Until next time, I'm Brian Tapork, and I was joined by Morton Jensen and Rich Cho. Have a good one, guys. You too, Brian. Thanks, guys. Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729-811. Select styles. Excludes in-store clearance. Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-sized prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729-811. Select styles. Excludes in-store clearance.